This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Reading, first reading this morning is Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Romans chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel portion, the first Sunday in Lent, uh, is Matthew chapter 4, and we will honor an ancient Christian tradition. Please stand. It's a tradition to stand in the presence of a king, and especially when a king is speaking and teaching. The good news, according to Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, 
He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, and may they bring uh, your blessing and your challenge to your family that's gathered here this morning. And we ask this again for the sake of your Son, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. This is the um, first Sunday in Lent, and the tradition, and it's a fairly good tradition, tradition is that we begin to uh, think about the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, his journey to Jerusalem, with really with his uh, temptation or his wrestling, you might say, with Satan <clears throat> uh, in the wilderness. Because those very temptations that came to Jesus are often the very things that uh, we ourselves uh, have to endure, or the challenges uh, that we face uh, in our discipleship, in that walk with the Lord. And of course, the obvious parallel, you might say, well, there are probably two obvious parallels between the temptation that Jesus has in the wilderness is, of course, with Adam and Eve, and then the temptations, you might say, are the trials of Israel in the wilderness. And so our lectionary rightly points us back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, as well as uh, Romans 5, which talks about the sin of Adam and death entering into the world. So I'd like to just focus for a few minutes really on the, the Genesis passage. And uh, what appeals to me about the Genesis passage is it's not only my, one of my favorite books uh, in the Bible, but um, it's a book that we so often ignore. And very frequently we read through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and we get to Genesis 3, and uh, we read about <clears throat> the uh, fall of humankind, the temptation, you might say, of, of Adam and Eve, their disobedience, and we skip over and begin reading uh, in the book of Matthew. So the book of Genesis, and even the, uh, the story of the garden, is not shouldn't only be read about something 
that happened to us a long time ago, that certainly still affects us, I think it's very current and very relevant because what's happening or what happened in the garden is still happening to us today. Those temptations, yes, that uh, Adam and Eve faced are really no different, I think, than what all of us struggle with, hopefully we struggle with, uh, struggle with today. And it's too easy, yes, it's too easy for us to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's all about the fall. It's all about original sin. And that certainly is true. But I think what we'll see in a few minutes is that these tendencies existed in humans, existed in Adam and Eve, and still exist in us before the fall, before original sin. And so therefore, they remain challenges, yes, uh, challenges to us. Why is it that we rebel against God continually? Yes. Why do we try to put ourselves or to dethrone God or to take his place? Why do we always, you might say, push or reject the limitations that God gives us for our own good? These are all questions I think will hopefully will come up uh, in a few minutes. Now, the book of Genesis is incredibly rich, especially the first three chapters, and we could spend actually months and months uh, every Sunday for a long period of time uh, talking about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. It's very rich, by the way, if you know Hebrew, because the Hebrew uh, is full of alliteration, uh, it's full of puns, word plays, it uh, is full of humor, sometimes black humor. But uh, we can't, I'm afraid, in our, the short period of time, we can't be too sidetracked uh, by those things. Only as a reminder, yes, that in Genesis chapter 2, which connects very well with Genesis chapter 3, unlike the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis, Genesis 2 and 3 is that God creates, a, that God creates His creation is good, and we need to be reminded, yes, that the impulse for God creating is, not was, but still is, love. God creates, yes, as an expression of the love that I believe that the Father has for the Son, the Son for the Father. Uh, It's a Trinitarian uh, relationship, and God creates not only uh, the world itself, but human beings in order to bring blessing and to enter into relationship with the human family. And God, of course, creates a garden, uh, a paradise uh, for, for Adam and later for Eve. It should not be understood that a paradise was a, uh, a lifetime cruise, for example, of the Caribbean, uh, actually, God put Adam and later Eve into the garden uh, to work, yes, to keep that garden or to guard that garden, to till the soil. And so human beings uh, were given a task in the garden itself. All seemed to be going very well, yes, uh, very well, until we get to uh, chapter 3. And chapter 3 of Genesis 
we have the story of the serpent. And it says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, yes, the Lord God had made. Now, it's very easy to take this out of its immediate context and to uh, identify that serpent or that, uh, that serpent with a snake. Uh, later becomes a snake. But it even is more tempting, yes, to identify, uh, in this instance, the serpent with the devil. Now that becomes a later understanding. But at the moment, yes, uh, for those reading, for those ancient Israelites reading this story, yes, to find out what has gone wrong and why things continually go wrong. Yes, there is no Satan in this story. There is a Nahash. A Nahash is a, uh, a, is also, is a word for snake, but an, a Nahash that walks is a serpent. Yes, and in the ancient world, the serpent, yes, uh, is a creature of chaos. It's a creature of disorder. Now you might ask, where does this come from? Yes, isn't everything wonderful? Isn't everything per perfect? Isn't this really paradise? But you for we forget. What still remains? The ocean. Yes, the ocean is always seen as a place of chaos. Darkness is seen as a place, again, of uh, chaos or confusion. So things aren't perfect yet. It seems that God's plan, yes, was to create order, to create men and women, and to allow them to, to expand, yes, his orderly goodness throughout the earth. And so you can easily use a scripture in Isaiah or one in Amos to understand, yes, that this serpent is, can be identified with the Leviathan. The serpent has an association uh, in, the, in its etymology. Yes, the word Nahash is connected to the word sorcery in Hebrew. And so for many people in the ancient world, this uh, idea of sorcery, this idea of some kind of magic, has the sense of trying to attain Yes, knowledge or wisdom or understanding in some kind of illicit or illegal way, through some kind of magic, through some kind of shortcut. Yes, and so along comes the serpent into the garden. Now the first thing that should have happened, and the first, you might say the first mistake of Adam and Eve is they should have somehow exercised dominion or authority over that serpent. They could have very easily said, hey, what are you doing here? Or why are you, uh, you know, engaging in trash talk here? But they didn't. So the first thing is they entertain what the serpent has to say. Yes, again, representing chaos, perhaps lawlessness, disorder, and the, 
serpent, it says, is very clever. Uh, at least that's what we read here. Um, it was more crafty, okay? And then he speaks uh, to the woman. And by the way, we should establish here that he speaks in the plural. And later we'll find out that Adam is standing right there. Yeah, so all the jokes, yes, or all perhaps uh, the blame that we put on women uh, for causing the fall throughout history and our teaching and preaching has certainly not been very good exegesis or um, not uh, fair in the slightest. And so being crafty and being clever, the serpent doesn't challenge directly. It plants a doubt. Yes, it's a small, yes, and of course it goes, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, previously in chapter two, God told Adam that he should eat from every tree in the garden except one. So you can see how God's commandments has been slightly distorted, right? It's clever. It doesn't kind of rush right in and say, don't do this, don't do that. It, it starts a doubt. Now, as much as we want to blame this, the serpent or later blame the devil, most of the responsibility will end up belonging to Adam and Eve. And even the passage that we read from Romans 5 Yes, the responsibility for bringing sin and death into the world isn't, Paul doesn't put it at the feet of the devil because the serpent later becomes, uh, later we understand the serpent to be Satan. But of course, not in this instance or not immediately. Paul lays responsibility on, uh, again, on Adam and Eve. And so, The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So distortion number two, God never said anything about touch. Yes, and so uh, Eve somehow she doesn't hear correctly from Adam, or she is going to somehow add uh, this stipulation uh, to what God said. Hard to know. But what's important to uh, keep in mind here is that yes, she kind of has the truth, or most of the truth, uh, and yet at the same time, there's some kind of confusion. Temptation, someone once said, the devil stares at us in the mirror. Yes, meaning we look at reality or our understanding of, of uh, reality may be largely true. But at the same time, yes, there will always be some kind of confusion and some kind of distortion. And temptations won't work, generally don't work, if they're 100% false. So here it's, God seems pretty 
clear, but yet at the same time unreasonable. You, uh, then this, the serpent says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the serpent, again, tells, you might say, a truth and a half. Yes. Yes, you will not surely die. Now, it doesn't happen immediately that when Adam and Eve eat, they don't die right then and there. They live for how long, Aaron? thousand years or something? 900 and something years, which causes causes Bible commentators in the ancient world, causes them all kinds of difficulties. And they have to do calisthenics to find out why didn't Adam and Eve die immediately. And so there are many Jewish and Christian legends uh, trying to, uh, or Bible commentaries, trying to solve this one question. But of course, Adam and Eve will die. They're going to, uh, they're going to uh, experience a death but that death, the death that they will, uh, the, the death that they will experience, yes, is first spiritually, and then physically. Yes, that super life that God gives them uh, will die at their at their disobedience, and so um, there's a truth. The truth is, you will know that Adam and Eve will know what good and evil is all about. And they'll find out that it's not all that it's cracked up to be, as uh, we will see uh, in a moment. And the woman said, uh, so it says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And the word pleasing there in Hebrew can be lustful. Yes, there's a lust involved here and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Yes, again, she's going to eat this in order to gain, yes, what really belongs to God and what God will give human beings, you might say, uh, under certain conditions. So she took and ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they engage in an act of lawlessness, they engage in an <clears throat> act of chaos, which the garden, uh, in a way, everything about the garden, and everything about how God created the world uh, was, in a, was to push back chaos and to bring order, yes, and to bring goodness, yes, out of, uh, out of confusion. And interestingly enough, they had to wear clothes, so they make themselves fig leaves. And there's a really nice, uh, you might say, wordplay uh, in Hebrew, because to be a traitor, and they were traitors, is to be a boged, yes, but to wear clothes, Clothes are bigadim, okay? Yes. So they need to conceal themselves. 
They need to hide themselves because immediately the knowledge of good and evil, now they understand that uh, they are full of shame. They understand uh, their nakedness, yes? And they understand now their alienation from God. They're going to run. But really what's important in all the temptations and why they're, you might say, they're relevant for us is because basically what's implied here, yes, in this so-called temptation scene is what uh, we experience constantly. So here's the nagging question. Yes, the nagging question is, did God really say? Did God really say that stuff about pride or the love of money? Yes, or serving myself or sexuality? Did God, um, is God really good? Yes. Does God really have my best interest at heart? He's holding back on me. There's something more. And what it means in part to be human. While there are many glorious things about our humanity, and even though we're fallen, I will not go along with the Western tradition that says we're totally fallen, yeah, that all of God's image has been erased. We're fallen, without doubt, but we still retain, yes, even in our fallenness, some of God's image. But there's this human, um, you might say, need to want more, to want more, to want more, to never be satisfied. Why wouldn't Adam and Eve be satisfied in the garden? What more could they want? Unless it is in some way to manipulate God, to control God, or actually to be God. And certainly that is the temptation. That is the human temptation, yes, throughout all of time and throughout all of history. And of course it has phenomenal consequences. We all want a shortcut. We all want magic. We all want a way to manipulate. And the ironic thing is that Adam and Eve were made in God's image. But even that wasn't enough. Yes, even that wasn't enough. They fall for the temptation. Yes, and those temptations were there before the fall. They were there before original sin. They were there before the break between God uh, and his creation. And they're still with us today. And the mystery isn't so much why Adam and Eve did this. The mystery is why we continue to do the same thing generation after generation after generation when it causes so much pain and suffering to us. Yes, now not all pain and suffering is caused by sin. Yes, the world uh, and the nature of the world is uh, still somewhat disordered and chaotic. And I'm not sure that, for example, even before the fall, uh, there was no such thing as earthquakes, for example, or volcanoes. Hard to know. 
because there was still this uh, chaos, there was still disorder, and God was, uh, I believe, expecting, in a way, Adam and Eve to expand the sacred space of the garden. You know, the garden can also, we can also preach a sermon uh, that the garden was the first sacred space, the first temple, and uh, Adam and Eve were the first priests, and that's another rich direction to go in, but we, we can't. Uh, we certainly can't do that at the moment. And so we um, have a, uh, a rebellion or a temptation. You might uh, we have a temptation and we have a rebellion. And again, just like to point out that while uh, the three, uh, you might say, points of the temptation uh, yes, one comes from the one comes from the chaos monster or the serpent, but uh, it was Eve herself. Yes, from her, from from this human dissatisfaction. Yes, from from this human, you might say, suspicion or fear that somehow God is, God's got stuff and He's not giving it to us, and therefore we must cross a line. Uh, in order to take it for ourselves. Yes. So that it's, it's desirable, it's good. Yes, this, this is something that comes from Eve itself. And this is why that while we want, may want to blame the devil or we want to blame somebody else, actually the problem is certainly within us. And of course it's no accident, is it not, that uh, after all this happens that uh, God appears to Adam he, said, he calls to Adam. Adam is hiding, as many of us still do. We hide from God, or some of us keep, we keep busy. We run, run, run. Uh, it's another way of not uh, uh, listening to God's voice and uh, uh, owning up or taking responsibility, especially when we're busy with ministry or certainly with good works. And of course, God says, what have you done? And then First, Adam blames God, this woman you gave me, and he blames his wife. Yes. And then you have a breakdown, really, in relationships between men and women. Now, these things always existed, or the potential always existed, but the fall is going to accentuate them. So just for one example, there could be many, but one example is you look at the way community and human relationships, yes, uh, are, are structured. Men and women were to be one flesh, but certainly by chapter three and chapter four, there's a break. And in chapter four, there's a break between siblings because we have the first murder. Yes, yes, God's departed, and where you have lawlessness, Yes, and God goes away. You very frequently have murder and even genocide. And then in chapter, uh, is it chapter nine, that the family breaks down, the family of Noah. And then chapter 11, it's the nations, yes, that are at conflict with one another. So what Adam and Eve start, yes, it's a bit like a snowball. It gets bigger and bigger and becomes deadlier and deadlier as we go throughout the generations. 
And we can probably take a lesson from all this because the process, yes, these temptations are always the same. This is pretty much the same process that will lead to death. We always will begin by listening to some voice of a creature, yes, some person, some ideology perhaps, uh, something broken inside of us uh, instead of the creator. And that voice very often is distorted. Uh, Again, we are easily confused. We easily distort the truth. Um, We don't need Satan to help us, but uh, he sometimes does. We then follow our own impressions instead of God's instructions. And ultimately, we make self-fulfillment our goal. Yes? And this is the proverb that we all know. There's a way that seems right to us, but its end is the way of death. Its end is, is the way of death. Now, some of this, especially what's, what our culture tells us, is a little bit, there's a, there is a little truth uh, to, uh, certainly to some of these things. So for example, you know, it's my party, I'll cry if I want to. It's my life, I'm gonna take control of it. Well, there is some truth. We should not be directionless. We should not, you know, just kind of float down the river, river of life without uh, finding a, a meaning or purpose for our life. Um, or, you know, this is, um, Um, I, for example, another one, I need to be in control of my future. Yes, there's some, there's some truth to that. I need to make myself better or to improve myself. Again, there's some truth to that. But when we push any of these things too far and we end up being the center of this stuff, yes, then there is that, you might say, that echo or that even that warning from Eden. Yes, and that and we begin to say to ourselves, even subconsciously, I can, I can break the rules, I can manipulate the system, I can manipulate God, I can somehow force God to do what I want, I can be God myself. And as I said, this leads again to death, it leads to chaos, it leads to confusion, and I don't think I need to give very uh, many examples, whether it's on a personal, personal level or a cultural level or some kind of a national level. But I'd like to just highlight one point before we talk about some practical you know, responses to temptation. And that is the place where Eve is tested is the place where Israel is tested, yes, tempted, and it's the place where Jesus is, is tested Yes, it's, the, it's also the place where each one of us, it's a temptation that each one of us will face. And that is in our identity, who we are and who God makes us to be. Yes, can we trust God for our gender? Can we trust God for our relationship with him, especially in Christ? Yes, can we be satisfied with what he's given us 
and who he's made us to be, the personalities that he's given us, not talking about the sin, or do we want something more? Or do we want something different? Yes, and so Adam and, Adam and Eve are made human in the image of God. And that was a good thing. But Adam and Eve want to become God. Israel's, and the Israel is challenged in the desert. It's to be uh, a nation of priests. It's to be a holy nation. Yet when it comes to the difficulties that it has, it has some kind of, uh, it has a hard time accepting that identity, living in that identity, and knowing God's blessings. Jesus, when he's in the desert, the devil says, if you're the son of God, again, challenging his identity. And all desert experiences, all desert experiences are similar. Moses, Abraham is given the land, but he lives in the wilderness, he doesn't inherit. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's court, and what happens to Moses? He's a shepherd. He's a nobody for 40 years. And David, he's anointed. But David spends years running around like he's a criminal. Elijah's full of God's spirit, and he has to run to the desert, full of depression, yes, and defeat saying like, where are you, God? What's... So again, each one of us will be tested in this identity. The question is, can we be secure, especially in the identity God has given us as human beings, and can we be secure in Christ so that when a temptation comes, that we can say no? Now, how do we practically deal with these things? And I, this is, I think, what's really important. Yes, the temptations we face as Christians, are gonna be no different than the ones Jesus had to address or the ones that uh, Adam and Eve uh, faced as well. And I think the first thing, we have to be brutally, brutally honest with ourselves and not to deceive ourselves. We, as human beings, again, we are easily, easily uh, deceived. We are easily led astray. We are easily confused. All we have to do is look at, all you have to do is look at the high school, the pictures in your high school yearbook. Yes, you open the high school yearbook and you look how ridiculous people looked, you know, with long hair and love beads or whatever it may be. And you think, you know, most of us should think, unless we're fooled by nostalgia, was that all a waste of time? Yes, was that all uh, an unfortunate diversion? You might say the 1960s or the 70s or the 80s, whatever it may be. But at the moment when we're in, when we're in any given situation, we're fooled by the spirit of the age. We're fooled by our culture. And somehow we think this is all uh, right and true. And just a few years later, we look back and say, boy, uh, were we, Oftentimes, were we deceived? Or was the emphasis uh, of what we're living through? Was it, uh, was, was it uh, unhealthy? So we need to have a certain brutal honesty and a certain humility, not a certain pride, you might say. And part of the, I think what's helpful when it comes to humility is to allow God to test us, 
Now it says in Deuteronomy 8 that God tested Israel, that God tested the people of Israel in the desert so that uh, they would know what was in their heart. Yes, so when things sometimes are going well, it's hard. But sometimes when we're tested or we're challenged, yes, then we can see, yes, the deceitfulness of our heart. Or it may be in some cases our, our heart is rightly attuned to God. But we need to, as difficult and as painful as it sometimes may be, God puts us through the test. There's a verse in Psalms, God will test the righteous. Yes, all of those who are followers of Jesus, we read in Matthew 18, will be tested or we will be tempted. This is not a place to talk about the difference between a test and being tested and being tempted. So I'd also like to mention a third point. My dear friends, in order to resist temptation and to fully know right from wrong, we have to have some authority outside ourselves. Now the word authority I know sounds very difficult to many people in the modern period. And it's easy to think about how authority has been abused. And uh, it certainly has been problematic at times. But uh, even worse than the abuse of authority is having no authority. Yes, we can't be the final arbitrator of what's right or wrong. We cannot decide what is good in our own eyes. Yes, we can't decide uh, uh, that uh, we're taking control of our future. Yes, God has given us, certainly he's given us an authority. That authority is the scripture. And that scripture we need to accept. Yes, not only the scripture itself, but to accept that God puts limitations on us for our own good. Again, that God isn't trying to be mean that he uh, isn't engaging in some kind of a sting operation. He's not trying to prevent us from enjoying life or from enjoying blessing. He's not trying to stop us, well maybe he is trying to stop us from being, humanly speaking, you know, all that we can be. Yes, be me, to put ourselves uh, somehow uh, in the center of things. Uh, and so we have to be willing to accept this, the scripture. And by the way, it's not our private interpretation of the scripture. We can't go around and just say, this is how I understand the scripture. It is the interpretation of the community. It's the interpretation of the church. And finally, it's the, inter the church over history. And finally, it's the interpretation, yes, uh, of the Bible through the teaching and the life and the death of res and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Okay. Um, this is, I think, uh, a very, very critical. Without, the, without that sense of authority, we are, are, we are going to uh, really not uh, have uh, any other point of reference. Yes. And finally, just to mention several things uh, quickly. One, uh, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's full of the Spirit. And, and then Paul will later say in Romans 8, yes, to walk or to live in the, in the Spirit, and we will not fulfill 
the lust of the flesh. So we have the Spirit to help us. And further on that same, really that same line, uh, when we're tempted, we need to turn to Jesus uh, and look to him. Uh, there are verses you might, uh, in the book of Hebrews that reminds us uh, about temptation. In Hebrews chapter two, yes, it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Yes, he's able to help us in our struggle. He's actually able to save us from ourself and to save us from, that, from our self-deception. Or you may remember uh, Hebrews uh, 4, when Jesus says, For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace uh, to help us at the time uh, at the time of our need. Yes. So there's also the community. Yes. We can uh, ask others to help us uh, at a time at a time of need. I remember um, uh, in First Thessalonians, where it says, "Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you're doing." Okay. Or in the book of or in the book of Hebrews, where it says, um, Hebrews 10, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for the one who promised, yes, is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting community, yes, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are ways that we can uh, overcome and resist, yes, uh, the temptations that each one of us. I'd like to just end, if I may, uh, maybe not on the most positive note, but with a warning. Oftentimes when we're struggling, oftentimes when we're being tempted, or even when we're beginning to engage becoming uh, um, addicted to some, perhaps, to some uh, sinful habit or continuing in sin, that very often that sin will determine our, not only the way, it will determine the way we read the Bible, and that sin uh, will determine the way that we understand God. But very often we will also want to bring others with us into that sin or we will want to bring others with us into that temptation as a way of assuaging our guilt, yes, or trying to make our shame somehow less. I'd like to end with the warnings of Jesus, yes, that we find ourselves in that situation. Indeed, we should struggle. We should ask for help. We need to be very careful that we don't drag others down with us. And so Jesus in Matthew 18 gives us a saying, that uh, is a part of his, you might say, his sin-fearing, um, his warning us that sin is dangerous. And here he says the following. He says, um, and if anyone welcomes a little child, I not think he's speaking a little, someone who's just a kid, 
like this, and my name welcomes me. But if anyone, yes, causes one of these little ones to sin, and I believe he's speaking about his disciples especially, his followers, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of such things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for us to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for us to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And so Jesus is saying, warning us not only to be quite radical, yes, uh, with our sin and even brutal, but uh, to be very careful, yes, that uh, in our neediness or um, what in our perhaps psychological or spiritual need, that uh, we do not bring others down with us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we um, rejoice that you made us as human beings, but we are indeed weak, weak as, um, as your people. And we pray that you will, uh, we pray that you will save us and bring us um, d- the deliverance that each one of us needs. Save us, Lord, from pride and self-deception. Save us from our own lust. Come, Lord, and deliver us, each one, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this not only for our sake and for our blessing, but uh, for the sake of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.